Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is John Carcello, the manager of Caribou Ranch, the legendary recording complex near Nederland, Colorado. Back in the 70s, the rage among recording artists was to hole up at Destination Studios. They reasoned, wouldn't it be inspirational and less distracting to record outside of the usual Los Angeles or New York circles? So they packed up their bags and headed for Caribou, home to many of the biggest pop music recordings of the 70s and early 80s. Welcome, John. Hi, G. Caribou, an idyllic setting, nearly 9,000 feet up in the Rocky Mountains, had been the largest privately owned Arabian stud farm in the country. The site, 3,000 plus acres, a dude ranch, was a motion picture set. And then Jim Gersio, who was best known as Chicago's producer, he had gathered up enough money to buy Caribou back in 1971. And he installed the studio by 1973, and he transformed the place into an opulent retreat for Rock's aristocracy, developed kind of an exclusive image for himself as well. You ran the place. You were the administrator, the psychiatrist, the fixer. So how did you get to Caribou? I was hired by our powerhouse management company, Howard Kaufman, Larry Fitzgerald, who were Chicago's managers. Jim had signed a band called Madura. We lived on Holly Drive, across from the Chicago house, where they had lived before they made it. Madura was due to record, so they headed up to Caribou. The studio wasn't quite done, but the control room and the music room were done. That was on the second floor. I knew Jim, but not that well. And my mother had told me, Jim Gersio called the house. And I said, God, I wonder what he wants. I called him back, and he goes, John, I want you to work up here. I was kind of nervous. What does Jim Gersio want with me? You know, And I didn't know anything about altitude, thin air, plowing roads, three-foot snowfalls. I didn't know what was going on. And I said, so, Jim, where are you going to live? He goes, right here. And I said, well, where's Lucy going to live, his wife? And he goes, here. And I said, well, you're the boss. And I started working with Jim's parents. They were great. And Mrs. G taught me a lot about hiring and Mr. G helping with a lot of the cabin work. The studio was done by a designer named Tom Hidley, who designed studios all over the world. Jimmy wanted a fireplace in the control room. And we had a big stone fireplace that faced the board. And Hidley was like, well, that's going to screw up the sound. And I don't know. I'll put my name on this, but it's not really a Hidley sound. And Jimmy's going, I want the fireplace. So the fireplace was there, which turned out to be great. And then Derringer booked. So that was really the first group that I worked with to go meet him at the airport and bring him up. And he did All American Boy, which Joe Walsh was on, Passarelli, Joe Vitale from Barnstorm, Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo. Later, Elton heard that, and the rest was Elton coming up. That's how I got there. It should be noted that within your skill set, you served in the military. I did. And you also were on the corporate fast track until you got on the road with Chicago. The discipline in the Army really saved me. 
I worked in S1 intelligence and in personnel. So I worked for the colonel that Steve McQueen played later in The Great Escape. And when I got to Caribou, it was very funny because I said, well, I'm back in the Army. Same thing, processing people in and out. (laughs) And the trick was, is when they were up at the ranch, they were just people to me. I don't care who it was. Okay, what do you need? What do you want? They were just guys. And they weren't on stage. So it was a good vibe. That life in the fast lane ambiance that usually accompanied a recording session just disappeared up at Caribou. It did. A basic rate per day of... It was a 1000 bucks a day, and that was food, lodging, up to about 30 people, outboard gear, up the wazoo. Anything they wanted, we gave them. There were no clocks, so they got to record morning, noon, and night. If they wanted to start at midnight, our engineers were there to work with them, and we had the best engineers around. And then we had maintenance guys that were incredible. The lodging, hardwood incredible. floors, dark cedar walls, right. huge stereo systems in each cabin. To while away the off hours, an antique pool table, horseback riding, snowmobiling. But the studio was the main lore. People came to Caribou for the sound, and it was like no other sound in any other studio. Tom Dowd, the legendary record producer, explained the caribou sound on a molecular level. He did. But he was literally a rocket scientist. He was. He worked (laughs) on the Manhattan Project during World War II, you know. With all that you learned over the years, can you dumb it down at all? Was it a matter of the altitude? It could have been. Tom told us that being at 8,600 feet, the way sound traveled through thin air... It traveled a little differently, but yet it would expand, do something to your vocal cords up there, which I believed because I remember walking into the control room. Elton was doing a vocal and he goes, we got to get this on the first couple of takes because then I can't hit it anymore. But you could hit highs sooner. Tom Dowd brought Rod Stewart up because of the because ability of to hit the high notes exactly. there. He that was he having... wasn't hitting at sea level. Right. And he did Tonight's the Night up there. In 1973, the year that Caribou Ranch opened, Chicago filmed a network television special there. Chicago, High in the Rockies, and a second TV special. Meanwhile, back at the ranch the next year, those were Dick Clark productions. Dick came up, and Charlie Rich came up, and we had Al Green, the only recording we ever did live up there, of Al Green singing, I'm so tired of being alone, with Chicago backing him. And Al hit the notes. Oh, my God, it was an incredible session. Caribou gained its prominence when Elton John recorded the gratefully titled Caribou album in the spring of 1974. And we didn't know he was going to name it Caribou. He was a huge star then, really worked out well for us. It's a romantic notion that he recorded his number one album up there, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Which he got a Grammy for that vocal. He didn't like the vocal that much, but he he hated that. But Elton was in the middle of another of his traumatic periods, mostly because of the rigors of his commitments. The making was really stressful. He had eight days to write and record the album. Not even a week, week and a half was tops, and Bernie gave him all the lyrics, and they were working, working, working. And he was done with that album in a week and a half and had a world tour following that recording. So he was off and running again, really flying.
recorded several other albums up there. Some fun things happened. He got a craving for a hamburger at one point. Oh, yeah. In the mess hall, they were serving roast duck, and Elton called it rubber duck. (laughs) So he goes, I don't know if I want to eat rubber duck. Can we get in that motorhome and go to Boulder and maybe find something? And I said, sure. So we piled in the motorhome and went down to Boulder, and we were cruising down Canyon Boulevard, and there was a red barn, fast food hamburger stand there. And Elton had his apple glasses on with diamond stems. I remember this well. He had a brown, white T-shirt on and corduroy pants. And I said, okay, you guys, let's write this down. What do you guys want? And Elton goes, how about if I go in there and get the food? And I said, really? He goes, yeah, I'll go in there. So we were all watching through the curtains in the motorhome, and Elton got out, and he walks in the red barn, and people didn't notice him right away, and then all of a sudden he got swarmed. He was signing autographs in there, and we could see all the people around him. And he came out, and we ate burgers and fries in the motorhome. It was really (laughs) great. Another bit of legendary behavior in 1975, Elton joined the Rolling Stones on stage up in Fort Collins at Colorado State University dressed in a cowboy hat, a Los Angeles Dodgers windbreaker. Elton's band and, you know, Jimmy, myself, a couple of the engineers, Kenny Passarelli was there. We went down to Fort Collins, and the Stones were on stage, and Elton had sent a helicopter. We all couldn't fit in the copter, so we had a couple limos. It was sold out, probably 60,000 people at the stadium. And Mick introduced him as Reggie. And Elton got on stage, and it was like six songs later, he wouldn't get off the stage. (laughs) And finally, Elton gets off the stage, and the road manager followed Elton over to where we were, the rest of the band, Nigel and Dee and Davey. And he goes, all right, all the people from Caribou Ranch and the Elton John band, you're out of here. You have to leave. We were like, what? We invited Mick for dinner, and he goes, he's not coming. (laughs) <laughs> so, but we all got thrown out of the concert because Elton wouldn't get off the stage. 1974, Chicago met the Beach Boys at Stapleton Airport in Denver. The boys followed Chicago up to Caribou and recorded Wishing You Were Here. That was a classic session. They were working on Chicago 6. Phil Ramone was the actual engineer. Jimmy was producing. And they were doing Wishing You Were Here. And they were having a hard time figuring out what the Beach Boys could sing as backgrounds or whatever. And got to be like 4 o'clock in the morning. Carl Wilson goes, okay, we'll try one more thing. If it doesn't work, we just can't do it. They couldn't get the right thing going. And what you hear now, wishing you were here, was what they tried. And they went, oh, my God, that's it. And that's the way the song went down. It was the last thing. So it worked. Really cool. As we alluded to, Elton John recorded several classic albums at Caribou Ranch, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy, and Rock of the Westies. Both reached number one on the chart. Elton spent time with John Lennon doing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. He had suggested John drop by on his way back from a trip to California, and he was up there for four days in the summer of 74. Your mom and sister happened to be in town that week. And I said, look, you guys have to go back to Boulder to the hotel, and I'll just see you for dinner. So Jimmy is walking from the mess hall to the office, and I introduce him to my mother, and he goes, John, they're staying for dinner, aren't they? 
<laughs> I went, I guess they are. And they were like, yeah. <laughs> and I went, oh, God. So I got my family, Elton John, John Lennon, May Pang, and like 35 people. Davy Johnstone, Tam was his son, and he was just a baby then. I think it was Tam's first birthday. So we were all in the mess hall having dinner, and we broke into happy birthday for Tam. To this day, my sister brags to all her friends, I sang with John Lennon and Elton John, you know. <laughs> and they go, get out of here. And I said, she did. And, you know, it was happy birthday, but she did. You know, it was great. A veritable who's who of rock music's elite passed through the gates of Caribou. Earth, Wind, and Fire, featuring Philip Bailey, one of our homegrown talents. Raised right. in Denver, graduated from East High School. But Earth, Wind, and Fire recorded That's the Way of the World, their classic album, Shining Star, a song that was written on site. That was written by Maurice White. Maurice was walking from the mess hall back to Running Bear, the cabin that you first come to when you drive into the ranch. When the stars are out at Caribou and you look up, you wait five minutes, you'll see a shooting star. And it happened all the time. It was one of those nights, and Maurice got inspired to write Shining Star. I was always intrigued by the album cover photo taken up at Caribou. The guys were in their Afrocentric regalia yes. and looked like they were freezing their behinds they were. off. The wind was blowing 100 <laughs> mile an hour. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> Dan Fogelberg described Caribou Ranch as a boys club because everyone in the boulder scene gravitated towards it. People like Richie Furet and Stephen Stills and Chris Hillman were all living in the area. Some bands like to duck down to the Pioneer Inn in downtown Nederland, sure. that bustling metropolis, to jam, blow off steam. Dan and I and Art Yotis, the owner of the Pioneer at the time, were friends. So Art would close the bar. It was 2 o'clock in the morning, and there were two girls sitting at the bar still. They were from Denver. And Dan goes, who's recording up there? And I said, nobody. And he goes, maybe I could go up and we could lay some guitars down or something. I said, yeah, that's fine. I'll get Gino out of bed, the second engineer. And I said, I'll get him to fire up the machine. And you want to put a guitar solo down or something? That's fine. I said, and Jimmy's in New York. He's not coming back till tomorrow morning. Let's go on up there. The ranch was empty. So these two girls are like, well, can we come? And I said, yeah, well, you know, all right. Art had closed the bar, and he had the bank of all the money that he took in a couple thousand dollars in the back seat. Dan had a brand-new Toyota Land Cruiser. So him and Art drove up to the ranch, and I followed him, and we got into Ure, which is the main cabin across from the studio, and I'm playing him Chicago 8 with Old Days. And I'm going, Dan, you got to hear Chicago's new album. He's like, yeah, okay. And all of a sudden, we see some headlights on the road go by. And we look out the window, and Dan's like, my car, my new Toyota, it's heading out the ranch. One of the girls wanted to go see her boyfriend or something, and she just jumped in Dan's car. He left the keys in it, which was parked by the studio, and took off towards the front gate. And the other girl was still in the cabin, sitting there listening to the music. So I called the gate guard, which we had at the front gate, and I said, stop her, turn her around. Dan and I were on the front porch of the cabin. He said, she's on her way back in. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning now. We could see her headlights coming down the main road. I said, she's going really fast. Oh, my God. So she took the last turn. We could see her fishtailing. And right at that turn is a pond. And we hear this big splash. 
she put his Toyota in the pond and it sunk to the bottom. And we go running down the road and he's freaking out, my new car, oh my God. The lights were still on and it was underwater. And so Art's going, all oh, my money from the bars in the backseat. <laughs> so he jumps in the pond and he's diving down. And I said, hey, Art, turn the lights off on that thing. <laughs> and Dan's going, oh, kill her. And I said, hey, you better hope she's still alive or we're all done. I lose my job. You lose your career. So she swims up to the side of the pond, gets out. She's soaked. And I said, all right, Jimmy's taking the red eye back from New York. And just the tip of the top of the car was showing out of the pond. It's starting to get light out. And here comes Jimmy's Cadillac coming down the road. And Danny and I are still there standing on the road. And Jim drives up and he puts the passenger window down. He's going, whose car's in the pond? <laughs> I said, his. <laughs> I point to Fogelberg. You know, he goes, all right. You know, he was totally cool about it. He just drives away. What appealed to most of Caribou's clientele, obviously, was the insulation from the usual rock and roll circus. There right. wasn't a nightclub down the street, or you didn't have to send out for food or commute back and forth from a hotel, even worry about the laundry. Nothing to do but eat, sleep, and work. For some, that was the drawing card. For others, it kind of drove them crazy, right? I mean, did. The guys were in their mid to late 20s. They were interested in coming down to Boulder and chasing girls or yeah, to well, score sure. whatever. Sure. So this is where your skills came in. You were also dealing with music industry people, labels and managers. Oh, all the labels and... came up for their meetings. What we did for them and for the bands, the mess hall was open for breakfast and then it was opened all day if you wanted to go in and have a hamburger or whatever. And then everybody sat down together for dinner. And then afterwards, they would send trays of food to the studio because the guys would be working till 2, 3 in the morning no matter who was recording. And I remember one incident when Chicago was recording, though, with Chef Lee. And he came out and was making Cherry's Jubilee. And you throw 180-proof grain alcohol in the pan, and it flames up. And he caught the curtains on fire in the mess hall. <laughs> and the curtains are blazing. So he walks back, gets a fire extinguisher, and puts the fire out. Everybody was cheering. The place was full of smoke. And Stevie Wonder, he was legendary for being up at Caribou right. and driving a car. From one I know. cabin to that, another. That's a funny one. Elton had brought up John Lennon, but then Stevie came up when John left. Jimmy said, get behind the wheel. And they were working the wheel with a stick or a cane or something. And Stevie pretended he was driving the Jeep and picked up Bernie. I heard Bernie had talked about that in interviews. In fact, that was in one of your interviews. I he said he, he didn't even notice. <laughs> he didn't even he notice it at first. That's true. That's true. He said there was more snow in the cabins than outside. Yeah. And he and that just was, wasn't that, really that equipped to deal That would happen every once in a while, too. In 1976, Billy Joel did his third album, Turnstiles, the basic tracks in New York, but most of the vocals and overdubs and mixing done true. at Caribou.
right. had to be interesting to have that crew of New Yorkers they up in were, the mountains. He, they came up and they were like, where's the pizza? Hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this was Billy's new band and he had never played with them live before. So he asked me to book him down at a club in Boulder, which I did. And there were lines around the block to see Billy and he was doing three, four sets a night. And it was six bucks to get in <laughs> to see him. They were really friendly guys. Frank Zappa recorded an album titled One Size Fits All. Eddie Rabbit wrote three number one hits up at Caribou. Driving My Life Away, I Love a Rainy Night, and Step by Step. Crossovers from country. And as we got into the 80s, Michael Jackson was up at Caribou during Thriller and did some secret sessions. It was after the Victory Tour at Mile High. Michael told his bodyguards, you can go back to Denver. I don't have to put tinfoil on the windows. I can breathe, was his thing. And being a Jehovah's Witness, he put on a fat suit as a disguise, and it looked like he weighed about 350 pounds, and he went to Boulder knocking on people's doors with a couple of people with him, and they didn't know that they were talking to Michael Jackson, and he never let it out that it was him. Al Pacino came up, uh, and it was when he was doing a movie called Scarecrow with Gene Hackman. So we were having a barbecue, and it was in the summer, and we were sitting in front of the mess hall. Madura were living at another part of the ranch, and Al said, hey, you think they'd mind if I went over and jammed with them or something? I said, no, what do you play? He goes, well, I brought my bongos with me, bongo drums. <laughs> so I said, okay, you know, let's go. And we drove around over to Forest Lakes, and he stayed for a couple of hours playing bongos with Maduro. <laughs> do you have those tracks, John? I wish we did. Yeah, I okay. wish we did. I wish I had my camera, too. The Caribou yeah. Girls lived on site serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and remaining on call 24 hours a day to prepare any snack or meal that came to mind. Every evening, the sit-down dinner with candlelight and wine. They made the beds, put wine in the rooms, and they were also quite the pranksters. They did things to Billy Joel, I remember. We had a stuffed wild boar on the wall. Billy was recording, and they took the wild boar off the wall, and they put it in his bed. They put a cigarette in its mouth, sunglasses on him, and a beret, and they put the covers up like he was sleeping in his bed. And they told Billy, they said, there's some chick in your bed. And he goes in there, and it's the wild boar, and he picked it up and threw it in the pond. <laughs> you know, he was laughing. Liberty DeVito. Liberty was Billy's drummer. Billy's and drummer. a wonderful guy, very voluble. Well, he would take showers, and he would use baby powder. He had baby powder all over him. So the girls, when he went to record Johnson's baby powder, they cut out the bottom of the bottle with a razor blade, emptied out all the baby powder, and filled it with powdered sugar. <laughs> and they glued it back down. And so the next morning, he's taking a shower, and he puts powdered sugar all over himself. And we're watching, and he's sitting there eating breakfast, and he's sweating, and he's rubbing his body, and he's going, I don't know what's, ha what's happening to me. I must be getting sick or something. I said, maybe it's the altitude. So they would do things like that. They filled Billy Joel's toilet full of oranges. They were fun. They're great ladies, man. But they worked for it. They worked hard.
The cover of Supertramps, even in the quietest moments, featured a snow-covered grand piano on top of a mountain behind the ranch. Photoshop didn't exist back then. Supertramps crew dragged it up there? It was Mark Garcio, Tim Johnson, and myself in Mr. G's pickup truck. We took it up to Lake Eldora, and then we went behind Eldora, and we put it up so we had a good shot. And then Eldora brought out the snow machine, and we covered the piano full of snow, and that's the shot. We dragged it up, pulling it on ropes and everything up the side of a mountain on the ski slope. And there it sat, and that's the real photo. A lot of people ask about that shot. We have to talk tech gear for a little bit. Started out with a $250,000 olive mixing board. That was the brand name that wasn't reliable, I guess is the best way to put it. So far ahead of its time, but the, the idea of having automation, which wasn't the automation they have now where the faders would move automatically, but it had voltage-controlled attenuators, which we call VCAs, and it could remember vocals. It was so advanced, but the chips weren't as good as they were later on, so they made crackling sounds, and that drove Simzik nuts. So that's why we had to eventually get the Neve in, which Elton wanted anyway. So the Beatles, George Martin, was helping us pick out a Neve, and that Neve that they sent us from Apple was going to go into Apple Studios, but it was only a 16-track. And we had to get an 8-input monitor system to interface with our Neve to make it a 24 and that thing, they put it on a plane, flew it across the Atlantic, and it was up and running three days later. And we had to have two of everything because we didn't have the equipment that you could just rent in L.A. Elton wanted somebody to fly to L.A. just to pick up a mic that he could use for vocals and stuff. just wasn't there in Denver yet. And the people that got to use this equipment, some legendary producers, you allude to George Martin, the Beatles producer, did an album with America up there, Chris Thomas, legendary British producer, did a Badfinger album. Bruce Botnick, who had worked with The Doors, became a Columbia staff producer, was visionary. And we had had two Ampex machines. This was before Studer. So we had two Ampex 24s, and Botnick and A.B., Al Burnham, figured out how to hook up the two 24s using a unit called a Simpty. And you could hook the Simpty up, which took up two of the tracks. So it was 46 tracks which was a lot back then. So Bruce inspired us to be one of the first studios, if not the first studio, to do that. Ultimately, other studios cropped up around the world that offered similarly exotic atmospheres, refurbished castles in Europe, complexes in the middle of the Caribbean. The in places to record among all the top bands shifted. Caribou stayed real busy, but boom turned to bust with the early 80s economic recession and record labels started scaling back and expensive destinations fell out of favor. Amy Grant's Unguarded was the last album recorded up at Caribou until an electrical fire ended the era destroying the control room and causing several million dollars worth of damage. Looking back on it, was Jim ready for a break from the business? I believe he was. Lucy and him wanted to raise their kids. I had left about a year before that, and he said, you know, I just want to maybe get some cattle going. And he ended up going to Nashville and starting CMT. 
And then when that was sold, he was able to buy his ranch in Montana, and he's still working it. And donated the remaining equipment to the University of Colorado, Denver, he in did. 1986, he did. when he shifted his interests away from music. What did you do, John? I ended up going to Los Angeles, and I ended up in another studio called Rumbo that the captain and Tennille owned. Worked there for three or four years. We had bookings with the Wilburys and Eddie Money and the Everly Brothers and Roy Orbison albums and a lot of big bands. Chicago ended up recording there. Just it was it was a great time. And now you're the legendary Johnny C, semi-retired That's with it. the beautiful Suzanne as your wife. It. Life is good. What's your favorite musician's joke, John? Well, I don't know if this is a joke, but there's some truth in it. We had a pet goat up at Caribou that played the piano. Oh, really? We did. Yeah, we called him Billy Joel. <laughs> Thanks, John. All right, John. <laughs> the Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C-O-L-O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a boulder-based, vertically integrated, consumer-focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.